morning to everyone. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Our text today is chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Before we get there, I want to look briefly at a verse in chapter 2. Verse 4. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, just briefly. There Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Again, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That verse is pretty important. It unlocks the flow of the book of Colossians. Uh, All is not well in Colossae. There is a problem brewing. Uh, False teachers have reared their ugly head, and quite ugly, and Paul recognizes the threat, and he recognizes the susceptibility of this church of these believers to this threat, and he is concerned, lest they be deluded, lest they be confused, deceived, misled. And from this verse, again, that's chapter 2, verse 4, right through the chapter, into the third chapter, he is going to identify certain elements, marks, characteristics of this teaching which is beginning to appear in the church at Colossae. But what I want you to notice is the first few words in this verse. I say this. Say what? Everything he has written going all the way back to the start of the epistle. And so as we begin back in chapter 1, verse 1, and as we proceed all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, Paul is trying to do something. He never speaks of false teachers in those verses. He never really mentions false teaching in those verses. But when we come to chapter 2, verse 4, I say this, he clearly indicates what? That everything he has said to this point has had a specific end in view. He is trying to curtail. He is trying to cut off, if you like, it's a chess match. He's trying to outplay, outmaneuver these false teachers. And from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, more or less, he does this by establishing two facts, two truths. The first is this, the truth of apostolic authority. He wants the church at Colossae to be clear and to understand this. These false teachers have departed from the apostolic tradition. These false teachers have departed from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The second truth, he is is affirming, he is building, he is constructing, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 3, is this, Christ's sufficiency. Why? Because as will become evident after chapter 2, verse 4, These false teachers are casting doubt on the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ to save. Yes, you need Christ. They don't deny that. 
Yes, the Lord Jesus died upon Calvary's cross. Yes, you must believe in the Lord Jesus, but, capital B, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you added this? Have you added that? They are undermining the sole sufficiency of Christ as Savior. And so in this first major section, again, up until chapter 2, verse 4, Paul is laying this foundation. I say this. Say what? He affirms apostolic authority, and he affirms the sufficiency of Christ. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And so that's where we find ourselves in the midst of this first section. But I want to give you this this overarching view. I want us to stand up and stand back and see what Paul is doing, what he is building, what he is constructing in this first section in preparation for that statement in chapter 2, verse 4. What have we seen thus far? Go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3. Paul begins to pray, and it is a lengthy prayer. goes all the way through more or less to verse 20. There are three sections in this prayer. Brother, sister, if you want to learn how to pray, immerse yourself in these verses. Here is everything you need to know. Wonderful parallel between this passage and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Paul begins with thanksgiving. And why is he thankful? He tells us right there in verse 4. Because he has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. He has heard of their love for all the saints. How has this faith come to them? How has this love come to them? It has come through the hope of the gospel. They heard the preaching of the word. They heard the proclamation of the gospel. That there is salvation for sinners in and through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God took what they heard audibly and implanted it deep within, giving them eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to receive. They accepted it. And so God thanks God, Paul thanks God for what? His sovereign grace. This tremendous work of grace in the lives of these believers. And then in verse 9, what does he do? He makes a petition. It's very simple, right there toward the end of the verse, asking, here it is, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Simply put, Paul wants these Christians to think biblically. He wants them to grow up. He wants them to be mature, to grow up in all things into the likeness of their risen head, the Lord Jesus. He wants them to think biblically. He wants them to reason biblically. He wants them to feel Biblically, desire biblically, dream biblically, live biblically. He wants them to be saturated with the will of God as revealed in the Word of God so that, what does he say? They might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing unto God. He gives four marks of a life that is pleasing to God. This life, verse 10, it bears fruit. This life, still in verse 10, it increases in the knowledge of God, that is, acquaintance with God Himself. Verse 11, third mark, this kind of life endures affliction with endurance, patience, with joy. And the fourth mark, verse 12, this kind of life is characterized by giving thanks. Giving thanks, why? Because we get it. We understand God's glorious work of redemption as accomplished in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus. 
having mentioned the great theme of redemption, Paul then proceeds in the third section of his prayer to praise the Redeemer. That begins in verse 15 and goes through to verse 20. Did you know that's what you have there from verse 15 through to verse 20? Paul is worshiping. He is praising God. How do we praise God? Far too often we equate praising God with an emotional experience. Far too often we equate praising God with singing choruses. How does Paul praise God? It's interesting, kind of revealing. He praises God by declaring propositional truth. That's why Chris, I don't know if you've noticed this, but that's why Chris, in planning our worship service on a Sunday morning, he will also often place right in the middle of our singing, what? Something out of a confession or something out of an ancient creed. Why? Because when we recite that creed, that confession publicly, we are praising God by declaring propositional truth. This is what we believe concerning God. And as we affirm that, we praise him collectively with one voice. And that's what Paul is doing here in verses 15 through 20. Celebrating Christ, our Redeemer. And he describes his relationship to creation. And then he describes his relationship to redemption. And in these verses, as Paul praises God through this declaration of propositional truth, he takes us, doesn't he? He takes us with him up into the clouds. And he gives us this, this, this vantage point from above of the gospel. And it's universal, that is, it's cosmic significance. And so, and so we're enraptured, as Paul is enraptured with the glory of God in Christ Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And there we are in the clouds, so to speak, this, this panoramic view of the gospel, its universal significance. And then all of a sudden in verse 21, you know what Paul does? He grabs us by the foot and he wrenches us back down to earth, places his hand behind our heads and shoves it into the text. And he says, now let's get personal. Too much time up there. Yes, you've seen it now, the the grand scheme of things, the great plan of redemption as it focuses on the Lord Jesus. You now understand who he is in relation to creation, right? He is the image of the invisible God. He is God himself. He is the firstborn of all creation. We know he's the firstborn of all creation because he's the creator of all things. His work of creation. By him, in him, through him, for him, all things were created. He also points to his work of conservation. Behold, all things hold together in him. We now know of whom we speak in relation to the realm of creation. And then he shifts gears and he goes into the realm of redemption. That Christ is also the head of the body of the church, the new creation. When did this new creation begin? He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It is his resurrection. How did he inaugurate this new creation? How did he bring it about? The incarnation, for in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And in him he reconciled all things in heaven and on earth unto himself through the blood of his cross. And so there we are, this great view of the plan of redemption and its universal significance. And then Paul wrenches us back to earth Now let's get personal. Look at what he says in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, You continue in the faith. 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Three verses. Really just a couple of sentences, if I remember correctly. But boy, they're, breath, they're breathtaking. Paul, he, he, he takes us into the past, and then he, he brings us into the, the present, and then he forces us to look into the future, and then he brings us back to the present again. That's what happens in, in this short time period here. In these verses, as he celebrates these truths, as he, get, as, as he now makes us look at the gospel up close and its personal significance, its meaning for us as individuals, as human beings, as men, as women, he goes to the past, he comes to the present, he goes to the future, and he comes back to the present again. We can get our minds around it by focusing on four words, alienation, reconciliation, glorification, and continuation. Did you get that? I'm not going to repeat them. Four words. Four key themes, truths, which emerge from this text and take us on this journey from the past to the present to the future, back to the present. We begin in the past with the word alienation. Verse 21, and you who once were, past tense, right? Alienated. I didn't make the word up. There it is. Alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And so he, remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. And so he is describing what Christians were at one time. If you're not a Christian, he is describing what you are right now. And so he's describing what Christians used to be at one time, what we were. He is describing what non-Christians, unbelievers are right now. And folks, it is not a pretty picture. Uh, Most people, the vast majority of people, uh, this is actually kind of fascinating on many levels, but the the vast majority of people, when they they think of their relationship with God, um, I'm I'm thinking primarily of unbelievers, they they think of it in positive terms. Yeah, I love God. Sure. Go to church when I can. I don't don't feel any ill will uh, toward God. Pray to him once in a while because I, I hope he makes my life go well. And um, yeah, I love him. That's how a lot of people would describe their relationship with God, even unbelievers. Many people would describe their relationship with God in neutral terms. God's doing his thing. No problem with that. I'm doing my thing. And um, maybe we'll get together at some point, but our paths don't really crisscross I'm not sure what he really feels about me. I have no ill will toward him. I'm just here. I'm neutral. No one describes their relationship in negative terms. And yet here's the harsh reality, as is so often the case. Our perception of ourselves is far removed from how the Bible describes our relationship with God. This is no pretty picture. Paul uses three expressions. The first is this. We were alienated. If you're not a believer, you are right now, at this moment, you do not have a positive relationship with God. You do not even have a neutral relationship with God. It is a wholly negative relationship with God. You are alienated. You are estranged. You are 
separated. This has been the predicament of humanity ever since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, they walked with God. They talked with God. Their experience um, pointed to their communion, their closeness, their fellowship with God. By virtue of their sin, what happened? They were expelled from the garden. And from that moment, that has been the experience of every individual, every man, every woman, alienation, complete separation from God. This alienation has two consequences. Paul mentions them in the text. And you, who once were alienated, here are the two consequences. The first is this, hostile thoughts and hostile in mind. Here's the second, evil deeds, doing evil deeds. The unbeliever it does not have a positive relationship with God. The unbeliever, again, is not neutral when it comes to God. The unbeliever is in a state of alienation from God, and because of this alienation, the unbeliever is characterized by hostile thoughts and evil deeds. Hostile thoughts. What are we talking about? It goes all the way back again to the garden, Adam and Eve. It goes all the way back to to Satan's cry to Eve when he tempted her and subsequently Adam. Uh, The day you eat of it. Oh, the day you eat of it. You can taste it, can't you? The fruit is hanging there. The day you eat of it, you will be like God. That is your problem, and that is my problem by nature. We aren't God, but we want to be God. We desire self-autonomy. We desire sovereignty. We want to be kings and queens of our own lives, our own domain, our own destiny. If God can help us get what we want, fine. We have time for him. But if God crosses my supreme desire, which basically is to be God of my own life, so help me. If I could put feet and hands to what resides deep within my heart, God would not live one moment longer. Hostile thoughts, enmity toward God, and evil deeds. That's a stumbling block, evil deeds. This is where, again, oh, the vast majority of people, they, they trip over this. They, 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 coming to grips with this is, um, apart from the Spirit of God, apart from a work of sovereign grace, it is impossible. Evil deeds. What, what are you talking about, evil deeds? No, I know what evil deeds are. I read the paper. But I, I, evil deeds... That's not, that's not my experience. I, I don't get what you're saying. And our problem is this, is because we ill-define the difference between good and evil deeds. A deed, an action, is morally neutral. Did you get that? An action is morally neutral. What makes an action good or evil, good or bad, is the reason why it is done and the goal that is aimed at. Do you see the difference? Because by nature, we were alienated from God, hostile in mind, guess what? That means our deeds, even if they appear good and appear right, 
are evil in God's sight. Why? Because the motive is never right. And the goal is never right. This is the stumbling block. This is where countless men and women fall right here in their understanding. They choke on this. Because you know what I'm saying? I'm not simply saying that we're all sinners and do bad things. I'm saying this because the Bible affirms it. We've never even done one good thing. Until you believe that, you're not ready for a Savior. Until we come to grips with that, we have not come to the, to the grips with the depth of our own sin and the height of God's glorious grace. Let me give you an illustration. It fails at many points. Don't press it too hard. 16-year-old son out mowing the lawn. Acre. Push more. Good on him. Why is he doing it? Right? It's a good action. It's the right thing to do. Why is he doing it? Well, I'm doing it because I know there's $30, $40 at the end of it that someone has promised me. And so I'm out here sweating, grinning, and bearing it because all I can see, I've got this, this dollar signs in front of me. I'm doing it because my dad has threatened me that if I don't do it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer the consequences. And I know what those, I have a pretty good idea what those consequences will be, and I don't want any part of that, so I'm out here cutting the grass. I'm doing it because it's Tuesday. Come Friday, I'm going to ask to borrow the car. Just got my license recently. I'm going to ask to borrow the car, and I wanted some leverage, right? Yo, Dad, remember Tuesday, what I did. And so I want some leverage, something I can present to him in order to get what I want. Or is he doing it simply because he knows he pleases his dad? Is he out there simply because he knows this is something that his father wants? Something that pleases his father, and therefore he desires to please his Father, and in so doing, glorify God. Do you get the idea? This is crucial, folks. This, there's, we can't go anywhere with the gospel until we get this, and we be clear in our minds on this. And so too it is when it comes to my donations to the Cancer Society. I cut my neighbor's lawn back in Ontario. I shovel my neighbor's snow, and, and, I, and I volunteer on committees, and I volunteer to help the community, and I pay my taxes, and I never do those really bad things that I read of in the newspaper, and, and all these good things, good things, good deeds, good deeds. What is Paul talking about? Evil deeds. Friend, the question is this. Why do we do what we do? And because we are alienated from God, we are actually hostile in mind toward God because we are in the grip of self-love and selfishness. Therefore, even those things we do which are right and good insofar as society is concerned are actually what? You know, many of us know the old verse out of the book of Isaiah, filthy rags in the sight of God. What, what, what do you think is going to save you on the judgment day? You're going you're to come out with this compilation of how you've lived your life? Evil deeds, evil deeds, worthless in the sight of a holy God because we are hostile in mind to Him because we are alienated from Him. Oh, it's a hard sale. I know it is. And I'm going to repeat it a third time. This is where countless men and women have stumbled, stumble right now, perhaps in this room right now, and will stumble. Some of you, I, I know I can get inside your mind. I know exactly what you're thinking. Some of you, maybe just a few of you. No, I just, I just, I'm sorry, preacher. I just don't feel it. Um, alienated from God. Well, my, my mama told, always told me God loved me, and 
I have a relationship sort of with God. It's kind of ambiguous, nebulous, but I think he's got my back. Hostile in mind? I never really have any negative thoughts. Evil deeds? No, I've lived a pretty, pretty upright life. This, this, this talk of hatred, this talk of animosity, this, this talk of hostility, this is gibberish. It's not my experience. It's not where I'm at. And I am unconvinced that deep down I actually hate God. Do we camp out here for a little while? I'm going to camp out here for a little while. And I'm going to give you five reasons why you've deluded yourself, deceived yourself. Five reasons. I'll try to be quick. Try my best to be quick. Five reasons why most people struggle to come to grips with the full weight and significance of what Paul is saying in this verse and this notion, this idea that by nature I actually hate God. Here's reason number one. Uh, People do not perceive God's being. People do not perceive God's being. What do I mean by that? People don't perceive that God is close. Most people don't even perceive that God is real. Yeah, I think God is real, I believe God is real, but I actually have no perception or awareness of his presence with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so you think, by way of parallel, you think of an individual in your life, in your life who you dislike a lot. Come on now, you all have them. You have this individual that you dislike a lot, and um, whenever that individual comes around or something is said, oh, you get those feelings, you know, the animosity, hostility. That person dies. What happens? You're given the eulogy at the funeral. All of a sudden, we've only got good things to say about that person. It happens in the world of politicians all the time, that they fight each other and would almost kill each other if they could for decades, and all of a sudden one dies, and all of a sudden the other's got nothing but good to say after 30, 40 years of this adversarial relationship. All of a sudden they've got nothing good but to say about the individual. Why? Because the individual is gone. And that's the reality with which most people live. God is there, but he's not really close. And therefore, he doesn't stir the feelings that are actually deep within, dormant. Think of a snake. I suppose this is true. A rattlesnake in the grass in a field. Someone walks by, or animal walks by, half a mile away, the other side of the field. The snake doesn't strike. The snake probably isn't even aware that that other object, being, animal, whatever, is walking by a half mile away. It's just not on its radar. That same animal steps within a foot of that snake. What does the snake do? It strikes. It lunges. It bites. All of a sudden, what? It perceives the reality of the threat. And so you're sitting there. I'm unconvinced. I really don't think I hate God. This is probably the reason why. It's simply because God isn't real to you. That's why. And the animosity is lying dormant. But all it would take is for God to come close. All it would take is for God to draw near. And what lies dormant within would rise up and strike out. Let me give you a second reason why this is the way it is. Many people don't know God as he is. That's why they don't perceive their hatred of him. They don't know God as he is. What do I mean here? I mean simply this, Um, they believe in a God wrongly perceived or understood. God, yes, I like my God and actually love my God. He's always looking out for me. 
and um, sent Jesus to show me how much he loves me. And he has a wonderful plan for my life. And he's doing the best he can for me. And um, he's trying to make sure that I never suffer or encounter any hardship. And you know what? He's a wonderful God because he doesn't make any demands on me. No demands. And he never frowns. He's never displeased with me, no matter what I do. And they minimize the holiness of God. And they trivialize the righteousness of God. They don't recognize their own hatred of God because they do not understand who God really is. They are worshiping a figment of their own imagination, an idol which they have erected for themselves and given that title God, and yet a perception and conception of God far removed from Scripture. I said I was going to give you five. I'm just going to restrict it to three for the sake of time. The third is this. They're restrained. Some people are restrained by fear. That's why they don't perceive their hatred of God. They have hidden their enmity from their conscience. They have hidden their enmity from their conscience. They've grown up believing God is all-powerful. They've grown up believing God is all-seeing. And they've grown up thinking, you know, it's wrong of me to have those kind of thoughts of God. And therefore, out of fear of the repercussions, Fear of the consequences, they squash what is alive and well within. I could go on. I said I had five. I'd actually already cut the list from seven to five. Now I'm cutting it to three. And I'm sure if I put my pen to paper and thought it through, I could come up with umpteen more reasons why it is as it is. But friend, I plead you to consider. Consider what Paul says here, especially if you are an unbeliever. He describes you as being alienated from God and as a result of that alienation bearing two marks, undeniable, hostile thoughts and evil deeds. You deny it. That's not the way I feel. I've just told you why you cannot trust your feelings. Either you are wrong in terms of your perception of God and his proximity to you. You think he is distant. Or you are wrong in terms of your understanding of who you think God is. Or you're driven simply by fear that that's not a way I should think. And so I'm going to kind of squash and contain those feelings and hide them from my conscience so that it never bothers me. But make no mistake, please I beg of you, understand who you are in the sight of God. Alienated by virtue of your sin and marked by hostile thoughts and evil deeds. That's the first word. The second word is reconciliation. And here Paul moves from the past to the present, verse 22. He has now reconciled. Remember, he's speaking to you. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, now to the present, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciliation, what does it mean? Listen to these words carefully. To reconcile is to change, change from a position of hostility to peace. Now, don't put a period there in your mind or on paper. No period. We still got a ways to go. To reconcile is to change from a position of hostility to peace by removing the barriers to peace. 
as crucial. It is not possible to simply to reconcile us and God by simply moving us from a position of hostility to peace. No, God must first do something. We can't do it. What must he do? He must remove the barriers, the obstacles to peace. Some of you will remember this. Most of us will remember this. Was it 89, 90? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Remember the wall coming down in Berlin, separating east and west? See, there was a barrier. It was an obstacle, alienation between east and west. The wall had to be removed. The wall had to come down before there could be what? That peace, that reconciliation between both sides. This is what we're describing here. This is what Paul is depicting for us. You know what you were. You were alienated as a result of that alienation characterized by hostile thoughts, evil deeds. But now, Christian, this is what you are. You have been reconciled. Reconciled, that is, you have been shifted, changed, altered, moved from a state of hostility to a state of peace because the barrier has been removed. What is the barrier? How has it been removed? Verse 22, he has now reconciled. Here it is. In his body of flesh, by his death. It is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the death of the Lord Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. It is the God-man, Christ Jesus, hanging upon Calvary's cross, where he becomes sin for us. Our sin is counted to him, that barrier. He becomes a curse for us. That curse, that sentence of death, that sentence of condemnation, that sentence of judgment reckoned to him. He bears our sin. He bears God's judgment in full. Therefore, the barrier is torn down and we are reconciled, moved from a position of open hostility, hostile thoughts, evil deeds, to a position of Peace, communion, fellowship with God, restoration of fellowship with God, a return to God who is our center and rest. Again, let me just speak just pointedly to unbelievers here. Do, do you grasp, therefore, that this is your only hope of salvation? This is it. This is your only hope of, uh, of salvation. If you don't get this, we're not going anywhere. Um. And yet it goes against the grain. It goes against the grain because we fail to understand our predicament and the seriousness of our condition before God. You know, most of us are like Adam and Eve running around in the garden after the fall. Do you remember after they fell? They, they disobeyed. They rebelled against God. They were aware they were naked. What is, what is that representing? What is that speaking of? They, they recognize their shame, their guilt before God. What did they do to try to cover their shame? They started sewing fig leaves together, Right? enclosed themselves in fig leaves in an attempt to cover their shame, cover their guilt. That's what a lot of people are doing today. They're running around in fig leaves, trying to compensate for their shame, trying to compensate for their guilt. They come to God with what they think are their good deeds, and God says, fig leaves. They come to God with their religious performances. Haven't missed church since 1997. And God says, fig leaves. They come to him with what they think is their clean living. They've kept their nose clean, at least most of their lives, except for a few incidents. Maybe they were a teenager, but they've done pretty good when weighed in the balance. And God says, fig leaves. 
They come to them with their financial donations. They come to them with their list of things which they think separate them from the rest. Head and shoulders above the mass of humanity. Some big reason, some little reason, but some re- something in them which surely separates them, makes them distinguishable from all those bad people out there. And God declares, fig leaves. And what does he do for Adam and Eve? Kills animals. And blood is spilt. Blood is shed. And then God himself fashions covering out of those skins to hide their guilt, their nakedness. My friends, that is simply the message of the entire Bible. All the Bible does is explain that. If you want a real simple overview or summary of the Bible, there it is. All the Bible does is explain that incident. And so you fast forward after Adam and Eve and you start reading about these guys named Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these patriarchs. And they're killing lambs as well, spilling blood all over the place, making these altars. What's that all about? And then there's this nation Israel and all these festivals and uh, even, even their history, they leave the land of Egypt, and the night they leave the land of Egypt, they've got to kill a lamb, that poor little lamb, blood everywhere, blood splattered on the doorpost, on the lintel, there's blood, 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 blood. And then they've got this feast, of Jeho- this feast of Jehovah and this day of atonement, more blood. You've got this high priest killing bulls and lambs, and he's entering into this place called the tabernacle, and he's splattering and sprinkling this blood all over the place. And then we come to the New Testament. And we hear this half-crazed man crying out in the wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation comes through Christ and through Christ alone. Why? Because he became sin for us. Our sin, my sin, Reckon to him in, in full upon Calvary's cross. And the curse, judgment, punishment, meted out in full as he hung upon Calvary's cross. Yes, at one time I was alienated. So far from God, it's difficult to conceive. Hostile thoughts, evil deeds. But praise God, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. But now there's a third word. Paul has moved from verse 21, the past, alienation, into verse 22, the present, reconciliation. Now, it's easy to miss this. You know what he does now? He forces it into the future. And I want to sum it up with the word glorification. What is the point of this reconciliation? What is God doing? He has now reconciled in his body, of flesh, by his death, here's the future, glorification, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We better not miss this. Many do. The gospel is not simply about what God does for us. It is about that, the reconciliation in Christ Jesus. But it isn't only, it isn't merely about what God does for us. It is about what God does to us. He forgives us to cleanse us. He saves us to transform us. 
He justifies us to sanctify us. And we have this hope, this certain hope, that a day is coming. Look at the threefold description in verse 22. When we will actually stand before God, holy, holy. What does that mean? Separated to God. In contrast to what? Go back into verse 21. We were once alienated. But the day is coming when we will be wholly, fully, finally separated entirely to God. What else is going to happen? He will present us blameless, faultless. You go back into verse 21, it corresponds to our mind and our hostile thoughts. All of it will be erased and eradicated. And on that day, he will present us what? Above reproach. You know what that means? No accusation. No one will be able to bring an accusation against us concerning what we have done. It corresponds back to verse 21, our evil deeds. And so we have this wonderful view of God's plan, His working in us, His plan of redemption in us on a very personal, very individual level. We move from the past, what we were, into the present, what we are now by virtue of Christ's blood. And he gives us this this little glimpse of the future of what's in store. And the Lord Jesus presents us perfect in his sight, fully conformed to his image, holy, blameless, and above reproach. There's a fourth word into verse 23, and it brings us back to the present. If, it's a conditional clause. If indeed, says Paul, You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now go slowly, go very slowly. That phrase at the outset of verse 23 can easily be misinterpreted. If. We might misinterpret what Paul says there. If indeed you continue in the faith, we could easily misinterpret what Paul says there to mean, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm saying is, yeah, you believed, but uh, the verdict's still out. You know, personally, as I think about you guys over there at Colossae, well, it's a little dubious. I have my doubts. I'm not really sure what's going to happen tomorrow. So big if here, and uh, you really should be living on the edge of your seats and have absolutely no reason to assume or to be assured of your salvation because anything could happen today, tomorrow, or the day after. That would be a gross misinterpretation. A better way, perhaps, of interpreting the original is this, assuming you continue in the faith. Assuming. And Paul is assuming they will continue in the faith because Paul understands that faith is a human activity. Who believes? You believe. I believe. We must believe. We must believe with our minds, with our hearts, and with our wills. We rest in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. We believe. And yet Paul knows what? He makes it clear what? That faith is a gift from God. That we believe because God enables us to believe. We repent because God enables us to repent. Our belief, our faith in Christ, our repentance of our sin is our response to the grace of God in us. And yes, we persevere. But the only reason we persevere is because God preserves us. God help us if He did not preserve us. I wouldn't persevere one day. 
It is because God preserves me by His power, enabling me that I believe and I continue in the faith. And so Paul is reminding them here of the means by which they receive this great work of redemption. He's reminding them of how it becomes theirs. He's reminding them of how they are brought into the sphere of the Lord Jesus, made one with Him, whereby His work at Calvary's cross is applied to them. And He's affirming this glorious truth. It is simply through faith. But make no mistake. I'm going to give you a sentence, and I'll unpack it for you, a needful sentence, a sentence which many need to hear today. It is the continual possession of faith not the mere profession of faith that saves. Did you get it? It is the continual possession of faith, not the mere profession of faith that saves. Oh, I pray for clarity. How was I saved? I was saved because the Lord Jesus died for me. The Spirit of God gave me eyes to see one day, and uh, through my mother's urging and uh, Sunday school teachers, father's teaching, everything else, um, I prayed. And I, my juvenile little mind, acknowledged my sin. I had a better awareness of my sin back then, perhaps, than I do today, and uh, asked the Lord to forgive me, and He saved me. But why am I saved? I am not saved because I said that prayer. I am saved because God saved me. And by a continual faith, returning to the gospel in faith and repentance, that is the means by which He saves me, applying Christ's salvific worth. We need to hear this. And at the risk of creating confusion, we must hear this and grapple with this. So many in our day, they have, they can, they could, you could run up here, some of you right now, and you'd flip into the front of your Bible. And you see, see, that, see that date there? Right there. That's when I said the prayer. Or some of you could come up here and testify to, to a moment at the end of a gospel service where the, there, was a, there was a sinner's bench and you responded and you came up and you said a prayer. Or some of you will just hold tenaciously to the fact that your mama assures you that you said a prayer and that you're saved. And you are trusting in your decisionism. Trusting in the fact that you think you've made a decision. I did something. And that's why I'm saved. I am saved because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. And that salvific work is applied to me and I receive it through faith. A continual faith whereby I live daily. I live, I eat, I breathe the gospel. And I return to the gospel daily in repentance. And it is the Spirit of God keeping and sustaining and preserving me and the application of that truth. Do do you see the difference? Oh, I pray there's clarity. Because there isn't for some of you. You're as confused as the day is long. Some of you, you are. Well, I, I, I was there when he made a decision. 
His life's been a mess ever since, but I was there when he made a decision. I don't care where you were. I don't care what decision you think was made. We continue in faith because God keeps us in the faith and the gospel is our lifeline and we live in the reality daily of the gospel. We never stop believing. Yes, we enter in at some point. There is a starting point. Don't misunderstand me. I remember very clear my starting point. Some people don't. But there is a starting point. It begins at some point. But it never stops. We keep believing. And we keep repenting. And this is what Paul is affirming here. Assuming you continue in the faith. Yes. Stable. Steadfast. The idea of unmovable. Not shifting from what? Oh, from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Not shifting from it. Which has been proclaimed in all creation. I think Paul simply means there the Roman Empire, the civilized world. He's been to one side or the other under heaven. And of which I, Paul, became a minister. Oh, there's a lot more I could say. I won't, don't worry. But there's a lot more I could say in relation to that. The, 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 the dilemma we live with today, here's, here's the dilemma, one of the dilemmas, I don't want to be too dramatic, but one of the dilemmas we live with today is this, inoculation. We all know what an inoculation is. So when we traveled to Africa years ago, yellow fever in West Africa, so you need an inoculation. It hurt a lot. They give you just a little bit of that disease, right? And then your body develops what? An immunity so that it becomes resistant to that disease. Far too many people today are inoculated against Christ. Did you just hear what I said? Far too many people today are inoculated against Christ. They've got just enough of him to not want him. They've got just enough of him, whereby they have developed a spiritual resistance whereby they have duped themselves into thinking it's all okay and all is well. Oh, no, to have Christ is to have him in full. To have Christ is to to have been where Paul takes us here, to have seen ourselves, know ourselves to be what we really are. It is to hear the hope of the gospel, the truth proclaimed, that there is reconciliation through the blood of Christ. Too many inoculated to God's wrath. What will it mean for someone who is alienated from God when they die? You ever work through that one? Right now, friend, you're an unbeliever. That means you're alienated from God. You're hostile in mind. All of your deeds, as far as God is concerned, are evil in his sight, unacceptable, unworthy. All right? In other words, to put it in black and white, God is your enemy. Remember I, way back I said most people today have positive... They, Think of their relationship, even unbelievers, their relationship with God in positive terms or neutral terms. No one is neutral, says the Apostle Paul. It's all negative. God is your enemy. What will it be like to die with God as your enemy? What will it be like to fall into the hands of an angry God, an offended God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God 
And yet how many people today are inoculated to the reality of the wrath of God? How many of us are inoculated to the reality of the love of God? He doesn't mention the word here in these verses, but it oozes the love of God, doesn't it? We wanted to wrench him out of his throne. We wanted to rip him right out of his throne. You think of that vision in Isaiah 6. The Lord in his splendor, in his glory, surrounded by the cherubim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Our desire, if our strength were equal to our spite, would have been to pull him down from that throne. He came from his throne willingly. That's marvelous. He became a man willingly. He suffered such hostility willingly. He bore the rejection willingly. He poured out his blood willingly. He became a curse willingly. He satisfied on behalf of his people God's offended justice willingly. Oh, here is the marvel of marvels, and I pray we are not inoculated to it. God loves us. Uh, we did not love him first. He loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Are you inoculated? I, I, I pray you're not. I pray these are living, breathing truths and realities. This is our daily experience. As we turn to a passage of Scripture like this, we are struck and reminded again by the depth of our depravity, our sinfulness, the heights, the rapturous heights and glory of God's love and the full and final and all-sufficient work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Father. We pray that you would apply the word of truth as it has been proclaimed this day. We pray that you'd be pleased to give us understanding. We ask and beg of you that you'd be pleased to send forth your spirit, that your word might become effectual in our own hearts, in our minds, in our lives. And we pray for those unbelievers present, that you would, as only you can, stir the conscience, prick it, Pray that you would not give them rest. Show them the sinfulness of their sin and the reality of your wrath and anger towards sinners. And then apply the healing balm, we do pray, the glory of Christ in the gospel, that there is a full and sufficient redemption and reconciliation through his blood shed upon Calvary's cross. And we ask it for your glory. And in the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.